Section 8 of The Red Lamp by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. July 19th. A sudden and terrifying storm outside. Above the howling of the wind I can hear the surf beating against the shore. Halliday reports over the telephone that the float is in danger and that the runway has broken loose. But there is nothing to do. I have just been out, and I do not propose to be soaked again. Note. The approach of the storm had made Jane very nervous, and I had driven into Dr. Hayward's for a sleeping medicine for her. Jock is as bad as Jane, and should have a narcotic also. He is moving uneasily from place to place, now and then emitting a dismal howl, and Clara is sitting forlornly at the foot of the staircase, under the impression that it is the only place free from metal in the house, and thus less likely to attract the lightning. It is indeed a night for dark deeds, and for dark thoughts. I wonder if I have any justification for my suspicions. Why should Hayward, preparing to go out to an obstetric case, start me along a new and probably unjustified line of thought? Surely of all men in the world, he has the best right to carry ether. I must be careful not to do as Greenough has done, allow my necessity for finding the guilty man to run away with my judgment. And yet in spite of myself, I cannot help feeling that Hayward fulfills many of the requirements. He alone, of all the people hereabout, is free to move about the country at night without suspicion. He knew Uncle Horace as well as anybody. He is, and God forgive me if I am wrong, enough of a sailor to know and use the half-hitch. There are other points also. He is about my age, if anything older, but he is a muscular man. And he is, like all general practitioners in the country, by way of being a surgeon also. He would know how to find the jugular vein of a sheep. I have reread this. Possibly Greeno was right after all, and I am a trifle mad. For why sheep? Sheep at a stone altar. And only an hour or so ago he was saying to me in his professional voice, That would take plenty of water with it, and not to be impatient. These things take an hour or so to get in their work. In all earnestness I appeal to you to consider the enormity of the idea, wrote poor old Horace, more than a year ago. But while killing sheep is unpleasant, even sad, there is no particular enormity in it. I pass by a leg of springtime lamb without considering that a tragedy lies behind it. The murder of Carraway, too, cannot come under the strictures of that letter. It was done as a matter of protection. Nearest of all to the possibilities suggested by the letter comes the attack on Halliday, and if the sheep killer did that, why not to put his devilish symbol on the car during that silent ride of a mile before he prepared to strike? Why well, have crept in later and done it? But here again, the doctor had access to the car, after Greeno had examined it. He went in alone, according to Clara, and was there some time. Was it, then, the doctor's typewriter which wrote the cipher over which Halliday has been puzzling? The G-E-L-T-R-K-28? July 20th. Maggie Morrison disappeared last night, disappeared as completely as though she had been wiped from the face of the earth by the storm. Livingston telephoned me the facts at seven this morning, and Halliday and I took the car and went over. We have been out with the searching party all day, but without result. After luncheon, young Gordon joined us, sent by Mr. Bethel, who had not heard the news until that hour. It was all we three could do to keep Edith from starting out also, but it was not work for a woman. Tonight the search is still going on. Starr has sworn in more deputies, and the entire countryside is aroused. Jane has been ill all day and has kept her bed. July 21st. No trace of the unfortunate girl tonight, and all hope of finding her alive is slowly being abandoned. I can now record such facts as we know, relative to the mystery. The girl went into Oakville yesterday to do some shopping, and remained for dinner with Thomas and his wife. In spite of Thomas's prophecy of a storm, she insisted on staying over for a moving picture, and it was therefore 10.30 when, alone in the farm truck, she started out of town. Nothing more is known of her movements, save that she got as far as the Hilburn Road, about 200 yards beyond the Livingston's Gate. The truck was found there yesterday morning at daylight by an early laborer on the Morrison farm, who however thought that she had abandoned it there during the storm the night before, and neglected to report it. 
At the farmhouse itself, there was no uneasiness, as the family supposed the girl had remained in town, but when the hour came for her to start out with her milk delivery and she had not arrived, inquiries were set on foot. The truck shows no signs of any struggle, and that robbery was not the motive of whatever has happened is shown by the fact that the missing girl's pocketbook was found behind the seat of the truck, where she usually placed it. Greeno and the sheriff were on the ground when we got there, as well as a small knot of country folk, kept at a distance by a deputy or two, and already a small posse, hastily recruited, was beating the wood nearby. Such clues as there may have been, however, had been obliterated by the storm. There is no trace of the dreaded symbol in chalk. Halliday has reconstructed the story in view of his own experience. The fellow was waiting, he said, and hailed her as he hailed me. He knew nobody would pass a man cut out in a storm like that. He got in and closed the storm curtains, and of course she hadn't a chance in the world. He does not therefore agree with the general conviction that we are dealing with sexual crime. And that word, general, does not include all of the population. There are many, I understand, among the more ignorant who have put together the almost uncanny violence of the elements that night, a night indeed for demons, and the complete disappearance of the unfortunate girl, and are building out of it and their own superstitious fears the theory that the girl's body will never be found, that she has been, indeed, spirited away. It has its elements of strangeness at that. Possibly five hundred men and boys have been searching steadily since yesterday morning. The back country, where it happened, is fairly open. The sea, with its salt marshes, both of which would give unlimited opportunity for concealment, is fully six miles by road from where the truck was found. Much talk is going around as to a story from the lighthouse on the extreme tip of Robinson's Point today. As is to be expected, the superstitious are making considerable capital of it, and I myself am not disposed to dismiss it without considerable thought. The story is as follows. On the night of the tragedy, a flying night bird of some sort broke one of those windows of the lighthouse which protects the light itself. The keeper and the second keeper repaired it as best they could, but the terrific gusts of the wind made them uneasy, and they remained on watch. Note, in lighthouses of a certain type there was a small aperture, running down through the successive floors of the building, and through which, as the light revolves, the weights of the clockwork mechanism of the lamp slowly descend. It should also be said that the Robinson Point light is a red flash, timed at ten seconds. They sat, high in the air, in the room just beneath the light, now and then glancing up to see that all was well. The storm increased in violence, and as the sea came up, the surf beat on the rocks below with a crashing only equaled by the thunder itself. As is usual in the high tide of the full moon, the low portion of the point to the landward, and the keeper's houses, the engine shed, boathouse, and oil storage tank were soon cut off from the mainland by a strip of angry ocean. Nevertheless, they were comfortable enough, and the underkeeper had actually fallen asleep at eleven o'clock when there came a sudden lull in the storm. It was that time, which I well remember, when there came one of those ominous and quivering pauses in the attack, which seem not a promise of peace, but a gathering together of all the powers of wind, sea, and sky for one final and tremendous effort. And in that pause, Ward, the lightkeeper, heard something below in the tower. He touched his assistant on the shoulder and he sat up. Both of them then distinctly heard footsteps on the lowest flight of stairs, five floors below. They were alone in the tower, cut off from the mainland by a rushing strip of tide, and no boat could have landed through the surf and outside was that unearthly quiet which was more sinister than the storm itself. Neither one of them moved or spoke, but the keeper remembers that, as the steps came on inexorably, a cold air began to eddy around the small circular room, and that he looked up at the red light apprehensively. The act, one sees, was the habit of a lifetime. Even then, with his body fairly frozen with terror of what was on the staircase, he looked up. At the top of the second flight the steps paused, and both keepers drew a breath. Then they heard a small dry cough, and the steps recommenced on the third level. Up and up. The stairs curved round the inside wall of the tower, and they knew that they would not see what was climbing until it was fairly on them. They sat there, their eyes glued to the door, and heard the steps coming up the last round. Whatever it was, it was on them. It reached the top, and the next step would bring it into view. 
Then the storm burst again, in an explosion that fairly set the tower rocking, and simultaneously the electric lights in the room went out. It was then that the assistant keeper swears that something touched him, something cold, but there seems to be no doubt, whether that is true or not, that the whole room was filled with the cold eddying wind referred to before. I prefer to trust the headkeeper's statement. Ward is an unemotional type, and this is what he says. I was scared enough, but when the lights went out I looked up at the lamp. It's an oil burner and it was all right. Old faithful, we call it. Well, you have to understand that we weren't entirely in the dark even then. Some of the red light from above came down and I could see where Jim was standing. I couldn't see him, you understand, but I could see where he was, and there was a third party in the room over near the stair door. That is, he was there one minute, the next he was gone. They did not make an immediate investigation. True to their type, they ran up and inspected the lamp, but it was sitting very pretty, as Ward says. They had candles, for it was not unusual for storms to put the Oakville Light Company out of service, and keeping close together they went down through the successive floors of the tower. They found nothing, and the outer door was still closed and bolted. In view of so detailed and corroborative a statement, the final support of my early skepticism has had a severe blow. What would be the change, should we enter another world, with the same faculties we have now, but no limitations in their use? For after all, it is the brain that sees, and the human eye is only a faulty window, which shows us but a tiny portion of the universe. The ear hears only a modicum of sound. To carry with us that strange thing of which the brain is only an instrument, for our poor physical use, and thus to hear all things, see all things, perhaps even know all things and thus equipped with limitless faculties, who would dare to leave out the emotions, to sorrow, then, to love, even perhaps to hate, and who shall laugh at the poor ghost who, knowing and suffering all things, makes this desperate attempt to avert a wickedness, to convey, through the thick mantle of the flesh, a knowledge that is not conveyable, to stand by, wringing its pale amorphous hands, while crimes go on and unnecessary wretchedness inhabits the earth? Nothing bodily accounts for personality. Back of everything physical, and greater than anything physical, is the mind, and mind is not an attribute of matter. July 22nd. The body has not been found, and the sheriff has raised the reward to $5,000. Thus, with Livingston's original 500 for the sheep killer, which is to go to the finder of the murderer as being in all probability the same individual, raises the reward to $5,500. Today, however, certain information acquired by Halliday has shifted the scene of the search to the salt marshes and the bay, and tonight... As I glance from my window, I can see lanterns moving in the marsh beyond the main house and up and down the shore. Jane has made coffee, and those of the searchers who have come up this way from the beach have been stopping in. Every bit of woodland in the county, according to the sheriff, has been beaten without result, and tomorrow they will drag the bay. We get a curious reaction from the men who are searching. The police, of course, see in it nothing unusual, and are prosecuting the case with vigor, but the fishermen, always a superstitious crowd, seem to me only half-hearted in the search. The story from the lighthouse has convinced them once more of the diabolical nature of whatever is at work among us, and there is current also a tale from some passing motorist that the red lamp was burning in the main house at midnight the night of the 19th. Coming up from our salt marsh, there is more than one who has made a wide detour to avoid the other house. Halliday's discovery, made today, is as follows. He calculated just how far the truck would have to go after it was hailed before it stopped, and went back to that point, which was not far from the entrance to the Livingston Drive. Already the crowd of searchers and sensation hunters had pretty well destroyed any clue that might have been left, but about twenty yards from the gates he found marks in the mud indicating that not only had the truck been back to that point, but it had been turned there and headed back toward Oakville and the bay. Just where it left the road again, if at all, was a question. I believe Halliday has taken the scraping from the wheels and proposes to have it analyzed. He finds something suspicious in it. I cannot say what. I have spent today reorganizing my household. 
None of the women, including Clara, are to leave it after nightfall unaccompanied, and although no entrance into any house has yet been attempted, Halliday and I have spent the late afternoon tightening window locks and adding new bolts where they are necessary. I took advantage of the opportunity to tell Halliday my suspicions about the doctor. He was so astonished that he let go of a window sash, dropping it on my fingers. The doctor, he said, never in this world, Skipper. And when I had put forth all my evidence, he was still skeptical. I admit, of course, that the weight of it is rather startling, he said slowly, but it wasn't the doctor I picked up. I'd know him even in the dark. I'm not so certain of that, Halliday, but I think Maggie Morrison would have. Meaning? That I don't believe she would have stopped that truck at night for anyone she didn't know. You have to consider the character of the girl. She was as timid as a rabbit about some things. Superstitious, too. I say she would have gone by, after your experience, unless she had had a particular reason for stopping. And I still think she recognized this man, possibly by the lightning which was practically incessant, and so she stopped. You're right in one thing, probably, he said. She had a reason for stopping. Edith has been recalcitrant about not leaving the house in the evening, but has finally agreed to it. I can write, she says resignedly. I haven't really buckled down to it yet. But nothing is more clear than that Edith's dreams of opulence are slowly fading. Her article on The Beach at Low Tide has been returned to her, and the Morrison mystery is being covered as spot news by those who are doing it as part of the day's work, and on a salary basis. Jane has entirely recovered, and has today resumed work on her tapestry, with us a barometer of normality. She has even agreed to dine at the Livingstons tonight, not particularly to my delight. Come over and dine, Mrs. Livingston had telephoned, and let's have a little bridge. I've had the horrors for three days. You don't object to my wearing my revolver as a part of my evening outfit? Everybody's doing it, she said. This house has been turned into an arsenal. But in the midst of death we are in life. Clara... Going to turn down my bed last night, saw two feet projecting from beneath it, and let out a series of wild shrieks. Needless to say, they were my boots, hastily discarded for a pair of dry ones. Later, Dr. Hayward stopped in this evening for a final professional visit to Jane, and on an impulse I showed him Uncle Horace's letter. I may be mistaken, but it seemed to me that, under pretense of reading it a second time, he was playing for time. Curious, he said when he passed it back to me. What do you make of it? The last part of it is fairly clear. He was in danger and knew it. But the rest of it? he said. What does he say? The wickedness of the idea. What idea? You haven't any opinion on that yourself? No, he said slowly. I can't say that I have. The tension, or whatever it was, seemed to relax then. As a matter of fact, he said, I thought it was addressed to me when I commenced it. We'd had a long argument not too long before his death on euthanasia. I believed in putting the unfit out of the world. He didn't. But of course the end of it settles that. He laughed again bit the end of a thumb, hesitated, and then got his hat. Danger, he said. And the police. No, that wasn't for me. And you still believe he died of heart disease? It was his heart, all right, he said, and going out, climbed heavily into his car. He seemed abstracted, and made no reply to my good night. I can read into this what I like. His manner was not that of a guilty man. On the other hand, it was not entirely natural, either. He was both watchful and self-conscious, and I do not believe he read the letter twice. One of the evening newspapers tonight prints a photostatic copy of the cipher found in our garage and offers a prize for its solution. Edith's memory is shown to have been faulty in only one particular. The cipher, as published, reads capital G, small e, capital L, capital T, small r, comma, capital K, period, 24, period, July 23rd. Mrs. Livingston has given me something to think about. The dinner went off very well, a trifle too much food and service, according to Jane, for a meal en famille in the country. One can see they have not always had money, says Jane, with the calm superiority of one who has never had it. But the bridge was irritating. 
It is always a mistake to seat four people at a table and place cards before them when their minds are full of another and totally different matter. Thus, I would deal and bid a spade, for example, and wait patiently for Livingston to sort his cards. In the pause, conversation between the women would be going on. Finally, Livingston would say, Who dealt? I did, I reply as patiently as possible, and bid a spade. A heart, from him. You'll have to have two hearts. All right, he assents reluctantly. Two hearts. Then we wait. Mrs. Livingston finishes what she is saying and picks up her cards. Let's see, she says. Did anybody do anything? I dealt, I say, and bid. It wasn't your deal, was it? I'm perfectly sure I dealt that last hand. We have the blue cards, I explain. Now I have bid a spade, and Mr. Livingston has bid two hearts. If you want to declare anything... I don't, she says promptly, and starts laying out the dummy. We restrain her by main force, and Jane looks bewildered. I'm afraid I'm a little mixed, she says. You bid two spades, Mr. Livingston? After two hours of that sort of thing last night, I was ready to go out and bite a hole in one of the porch pillars. But Jane at that point tactfully ended the game and saved my reason. Nevertheless, the evening was not without a peculiar interest of its own. While Mr. Livingston took Jane to see his hothouses, I had a few moments alone with his wife, and I received what is to me a new angle on the whole mysterious business. We were in the library, and I was wandering around looking at Livingston's books. They were the usual uncut editions a man thinks he should have on his shelves, but reserves for his old age to read. Darwin, Huxley, and Haeckel, de Maupassant in English, Tennyson, Wordsworth and Shelley, and, of course, Emerson, among others. In one corner, however, was a large and well-worn collection of books of an entirely different character. They were, as a matter of fact, books on psychic subjects, and as I glanced up from them, Mrs. Livingston was watching me gravely. If you do not know what you believe on these matters, I said, you must certainly know the opinions of others. And you, she said, are you still a cynic, a carrion crow? I turned and faced her. I don't know what I am. Ah, you have heard the lighthouse story? Yes. She said nothing for a moment, then, what about your new tenant, your Mr. Bethel? Has he made any complaint? Not yet. As a matter of fact, I have talked to him only once. And that was? Mostly about hot water and a beef cube, I admitted. And the direction in which the house faces. He struck me as an extremely irritable and material type. Irritable and material, she repeated thoughtfully. And yet I suppose you know they are saying that he is using the red lamp. The red lamp is locked away. So far as I know, he doesn't even suspect its existence. For some reason or other, that puzzled her. But it's been seen burning, she protested after a blank pause. It is locked in a closet on the upper floor, Mrs. Livingston, and I have the key. What is more, I heard that story some time ago and investigated. So far as I can tell, it has not been disturbed since I put it there. Of course, he may have brought another similar lamp, but that's going rather far, isn't it? Annie Cochran would know. I'll ask her if you like, but privately I believe that if she so much as saw such a lamp, she would run shrieking from the place. She picked up some knitting at her elbow and worked at it thoughtfully. You have changed since I last talked to you, she said at last. What has brought about that change, Mr. Porter? A good bit has happened since then. She looked up at me searchingly. Including the lighthouse? Including the lighthouse, I agreed soberly. It was then she put down her knitting. Why has he come back? She asked, watching me intently. Why is he earthbound? Have you no idea? I haven't an idea what you mean by earthbound. Just what I appear to mean, and you know it, she said. But after a moment, during which she continued her curiously searching gaze at me, she picked up her work again with a smile. There is always a reason, she said. You can laugh if you like, Liv does, but I know what I know. There is always a reason when they come back like this, a very good reason. But beyond that she refused to go. Whether she has an inkling of this reason to which she attributes what she refers to us as coming back, I have no idea. The conversation, as I record it, seems as extraordinary as the entire situation. Two intelligent people, a man and a woman, discussing the return of a spirit to Earth, much as they might that of a friend from Europe. What brought him back? Goodness knows, some sort of business, perhaps. 
Some of the humorless thing occurred to me on the way home, and with no disrespect, I chuckled. What in the world are you laughing at? Jane demanded. Sheer relief that that's over, I said. It was then that Jane made the remark about the Livingstons not always having had money. July 24th. The truck, according to Halliday's analysis, had been driven through heavy leaf mold, but a second drenching rain toward morning, and still continuing, discourages him. Into the bargain, the cars of searchers and summer tourists alike have made it practically impossible to identify any trail. He has given his information and the result of the report to Greeno, but that gentleman appears to think he requires no assistance. If you amateurs would keep out, he grumbled, we would get somewhere with this case. Someday one of you is going to be missing and I'll have more trouble on my hands. From which one may gather that Mr. Greeno feels that we are not through with the situation. Greeno himself is frankly puzzled. Whether his espionage of me assures him that my single excursion the night of the tragedy was to Dr. Hayward's office and back again, or whether he believes that this new catastrophe bears no relation to the sheep killing, I do not know. But the fact remains that, when we went today, he showed me more civility than he has shown in our casual encounters recently. But I have reason to believe that I am still being carefully watched, especially at night, and that his vigilance has increased since the loss of my fountain pen. He has, in his mind, definitely connected me with Carraway, and it is, I dare say, only needed to establish some connection between this recent mystery and the ones that have preceded it to set him at my heels again. As a matter of fact, until the body is found or some such connection is established, he has no case in law against anybody, according to Halliday. There can be no murder without a body, says Halliday. The law of corpus delicti, you know. He either has to find the Morrison girl or, failing that, pin his case to Carraway. He, Halliday, and Edith have taken the car and gone out this evening. Jane is very uneasy, but I feel that they will be safe enough. The best time to travel is immediately after a railroad accident. End of section 8